We all have something of the beast inside us. We can either suppress it or encourage it. In your case, you encouraged it too much. In your subconscious, you wanted it to live. You wanted it so badly, it actually came to be. My dark half. George Stark is my dark half. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Dark Half. What's going on? Murder. Wentzel. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. Most of us keep that inner being hidden away, locked up. The fiction writer doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to hide it. Hosted by Arnie. A man with a straight, sharp answer for everything. Stuart. A man who doesn't stumble over things. Never looks weak or silly. And Jacob. They wanted me to confirm that you were a man of good character. I lied and told them that you were. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You don't want to fuck with me, because when you fuck with me, you're fucking with the best. Listener discretion is advised. Let it out, bring it out in the open, let it live, let it breathe, let it party, then give it the car keys, let it ride! Today we're discussing The Dark Half, starring Timothy Hutton, Timothy Hutton, Amy Madigan, Julie Harris, and Michael Rooker as Alan Pangborn, directed by George A. Romero. This is the dark half of Now Playing's host selection, Arnie. And Stuart. Don't fuck with me, cockknockers. This is Jacob. Is that anything like Tommy Knockers? <laughs> this book is... <laughs> Maybe better, we'll discuss. I mean, we talked about how Tommy Knockers was the book that King was like, Fuck this, I gotta go get some help. I gotta go to AA. Is this the book where he revealed he was Richard Bachman? Because, man, he loves putting himself in his stories. Well, a myth is that Stephen King writes one book and then moves on to the next book. And it's even a myth propagated by his characters that seem to do exactly that. King writes three or four books at a time. He spends four hours in the morning writing a book, and then he'll spend four hours in the afternoon editing a book that he's already written, and that's kind of his work pattern. So The Dark Half was half written in a dark time of his life, but yet it was also one of the first books to be completed after his recovery. Yeah, it's his goodbye to the 80s. It's the last book he turned out right at the end of 1989. And it was the first book I got as part of my Stephen King book club. And I read it voraciously. I hadn't read Stephen King in a couple years by that point. And I was excited to get the book club as a gift for my birthday. You know, kind of like a fruit of the month club, only horror of the month. And I remember really, really liking this book. I was just involved, and yeah, I definitely saw the Richard Bachman parallels there. Had that come out yet at this point? Oh, long, long ago. Okay. It was shortly after Thinner that it came out, but the difference is here, you know, the guy who outs the pen name is portrayed as Sleaze. King, when the guy who figured it out contacted him... King took him to dinner and like had a chat and congratulated him and was like, yeah, I guess it was bound to happen. And then brought the guy to a magazine like this guy deserves all the credit. He figured it out. And yeah, I'm done with Bachman. And Misery was supposed to be a Bachman book, but the name had been revealed at that point. Right. It was not a scandal. It, yeah, I mean, by this point, Running Man was being advertised as a Stephen King. We were years and years beyond The Secret being spoiled. And yeah, to hear Arnie explain it, he's kind of 
past the drinking stage. This is what new publishers, new him, new decade happening for him. I was in English class writing my Stephen King paper. The longest thing I wrote sophomore year was this 20-page paper about Stephen King, and it was brand new. I, was, I didn't need more material. You know, King has a lot of books. I'm like, ah, I'll get to it after I finish. I didn't realize I wasn't going to read Stephen King for decades. But the <laughs> funny thing, coming back to it, I read it yesterday for the first time, was when I actually read King for Fun last summer, it's the same book. Do you guys know about The Outsider, one of his more recent novels that just got turned into an HBO miniseries? I haven't read it, but I know of it. Jason Bateman is this mild-mannered, well-regarded teacher who is accused of a vile murder because his fingerprints are all over this crime scene, and yet he has a really good alibi because he was at a conference, and they have video footage, and other people can attest he was there. So is it possible for a man to be in two places at once? Is it possible that you can have an evil look-alike doing everything you wouldn't dare. Same theme in The Outsider three decades later. Obviously, that went in a different direction. It ended up going closer to it. Dark Half kind of takes a U-turn back to misery. It ends up feeling very much like an author who doesn't want to resurrect a character he wrote being forced to and having a big fight with, uh, I guess, a fan. But I also view this as, like Tommy Knockers, a metaphor for addiction. You know, I reread the book as well for this review, and there's so much discussion about having a dark side or how the main character Thad acted when he would be that alternate character. I, and being called the dark half, I really think this is King writing about writers, but again, discussing like he did in The Shining, how alcoholism can bring out the worst in people. But is there any truth to it? Like, did King say, I don't want to write it horror anymore because in order to write that, I will need to hit the bottle? You know, people talk about, like, comedians say, I'm not funny if I'm not drunk. I don't know how to get sober. Were those anxieties there when Stephen King was like, well, I've got to publish more books, but I don't want to drink? No, he never said anything about not being able to write horror. I don't think he ever thought about writing much else at that point, but he was afraid that he wouldn't be able to write, period. And in fact, after getting sober, I think I mentioned this during It or Tommy Knockers, that was his first period of writer's block was when he got sober, and that's why we ended up with a revised expanded edition of The Stand instead of a new book. I do think, though, he was just kind of tired of the genre in general. I mean, he felt like he'd said what he had to say with it, and he was tired of being shit on by critics, you know? He yeah. he blows them off, but yet it, I think, bothered him that he was never taken as a serious novelist. I think in that way, he kind of looks like George Stark here. Anything that would be critically acclaimed doesn't sell well, and King sells well. So there's... Quite a bit of that, but it's not like when he came back, he didn't start writing Needful Things, which was the last Castle Rock book in that regard, but it was definitely horror. Satan comes to Castle Rock. And then Gerald's Game, kind of psychological horror. Dolores Claiborne, here's where you can tell he's trying to do literature with Dolores Claiborne. Yeah, there was a lot of like women in jeopardy, women's point of view books, it seems like in the 90s. Uh, Dolores Claiborne and Rose Matter. Yeah, right. So yeah, I guess the, yeah, there was a change. We'll see it. Eventually, we'll get to some of those adaptations. But yeah, right now he's caught in between. He's halfway in horror and halfway going to the literary 
psychological genre that he feels critics respect more. And it was a bestseller. It was a hit. You liked it. I was kind of ambivalent. My General King complaints kept coming up. Boy, this is taking too long. And this ending is not everything that I wanted it to be. And it's really only interesting because we have this familiarity with King. We know about his addiction problems. And we know about Richard Bachman. Well, too long... I actually liked this book because, other than Misery, it was kind of one of his shorter ones for quite a while. I mean, it- Oh, so it's under 500 pages then. 431. There you go. Wow, did I call that? (laughs) So it's Cujo, which is too long as well. Oh, yeah, that was too long. Rereading it this time, I see what I liked about it when I was a high school junior, but- I didn't like it as much this time. Eventually, I'll do a full analysis. But what I can say right now is it felt like he was trying to write his version of Agatha Christie for quite a period of it. Like, it's trying to be a mystery. But it's a lot of people sitting around tables theorizing what could happen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And not a lot of actual things happening until, like, the last third. And I think that's something that this movie we're going to discuss is struggling with because... This movie is exceptionally faithful to the book. George Romero was kind of in a dark space in his career. He had just done Monkey Shines. Not a good film. Not good for monkeys. Not good for anyone, really. (laughs) Not good for him because it bombed terribly. And he was trying to get a job. He was looking for work. And he and King had been friends for many years, going back to before Creepshow. And they talked about doing The Stand together and all that stuff. And so King was like, here, George, you need something. I'm going to give you the dark half. You go and run with that. Well, you know, it is about a character that crawls out of a grave. He's kind of a zombie, this George Stark character. So let me put it this way. We need someone that thinks visually, viscerally, wants to eat brains on screen. Like We need gore and lots of things added to this because, as you rightly point out, it is very talky on the page and you, you need to be able to see stuff. And Romero basically said he felt chagrined by Monkey Shines and he did not want this to be a Romero film. He didn't want to bring any auteur quality to it. He didn't want to put his stamp on this. He just wanted to take what King wrote and put it on screen verbatim. Well, mission accomplished, except for one little scene at the end. This does not feel like a George Romero film. And there are tweaks. He consolidates some characters. I think actually all the changes, the way he neatens things up, are are actually quite good. But you're right, it's more close to the book than many of these movies tend to be. And it was made at Orion. When Romero got the rights to the book, he decided the devil you know is how he phrased it. Orion was the one who had bungled monkey shines in his mind. They even were apologizing to him for a terrible release and promotion of that movie. And he went back to them and like, I know you guys fucked up with monkey shines, but how about you stake me for the dark half? And they gave him about 12 million. He did go over budget and over time. And I'm not going to say Romero did it by going over budget, but in the time that it was done, Orion went bankrupt. Orion was a studio I loved. They did RoboCop and so many movies I liked started with that Orion logo and music. Yeah, Orion was kind of Miramax before the Weinsteins. If you were a film artist and you didn't want to watch Hollywood rip up your stuff, you go there because they actually care about art. And a lot of film artists 
everyone from Woody Allen, Oliver Stone, Jonathan Demme. I mean, the crazy thing was they had two consecutive best picture films in a row. Dance with the Wolves. Everyone thought Kevin Costner was crazy for making a Western. Huge film. Then Jonathan Demme, this quirky indie comedy guy, puts out Silence of the Lambs, another big hit. But it didn't matter. They had staked their claim on art and lost all their finances so they had the two biggest hits of the 90s and yeah no money so it put a lot of you mentioned robocop robocop 3 sat on a shelf just like this movie (laughs) this movie ran out of funding before it was complete the funniest story is they were in post-production and christopher young you know hellraiser was doing the score freddy's revenge nightmare on elm street 2 christopher young and They got about two-thirds of the way through the movie, and then they ran out of money. They could no longer pay Christopher Young for the last portion of the music, and even if Christopher Young gave it to them for free, they couldn't afford the musicians to play the music, so they just had to take what was recorded for the first two-thirds of the movie and fill in the last third. Well, that's bad. Well, usually what happens in these circumstances, uh, you know, movie for sale, you go out there, you try and sell it to a studio that can finish the project. There were no takers, huh? I don't think they did that. Like you said, RoboCop 3, this, a lot of stuff sat on a shelf as they went through their bankruptcy proceedings. And that took four years. I mean, I actually did look up some of the movies that got delayed. And I'm not going to say these are exactly quality films, but... Remember Car 54, Where Are You? They made a movie of that? I don't remember it. (laughs) I knew they made a movie of it, but that was during the time when they were making a movie out of every golden oldie TV show. And then The Favor, and I'm not talking about the recent one with Cameron Diaz. I'm talking about the one that was made in 1990 with Brad Pitt and Bill Pullman. (laughs) Never even heard of it. (laughs) Yeah, no, nothing. I actually saw that one. Uh, Clifford? The Big Red Dog? Oh, no shit. Oh, fuck no. Don't even bring it up. Live action? Don't no, 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 no. It's not Clifford the Red Dog. Just block it from your mind. I never want to think about... <laughs> Martin Short. Martin Short as a child. And Charles Grodin and yeah, Dabney no. Coleman. No, 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 no. Yeah, these are terrible films that never should have been made, much less taken off of a shelf. But the Stephen King property is probably one that you could give it a little bit of food and water and it might walk again. You know, like you could probably get this in better shape. But it took, what, three years? Two, it was filmed in 91. It was released in 93. I saw that it came out and did spectacularly nothing. I mean, it was trounced by Indecent Proposal and The Sandlot. And it was actually airing pretty much at the same time that Tommy Knockers was on ABC TV. So it probably just reinforced the feeling I had that, you know what, that Stephen King, that was something from my childhood. I don't want to see this movie I don't need to patronize this. And I feel like a broken record because we've been spending a lot of time talking about early 90s films, but I'll just bullet points. College freshman, no money, went to see no movies, knew this came out, but even if I had gone to see movies, and I did see Indecent Proposal at the dollar cinema, you know, later on when they put second run movies in and you could see it for a dollar, but... I had no interest in this. I rented it when it was a quote-unquote new release on video. I'm going to be a total almost boomer here and tell the millennials, see, when I was growing up, you had to go to a store to watch movies. You'd rent them, and there'd be a big wall that said new releases, and then you'd have all the old movies elsewhere. But they'd leave certain movies under new releases for like two years because they could rent for more money. (laughs) Yeah, I'm guessing this one had one copy in the new release section, not like 30 (laughs) like the big blockbusters did. Yeah. 
I definitely don't think that there was ever any high demand for this. Again, it wasn't even really a Stephen King title that had the same cachet as, you know, like a Shining or Carrie or something like that. Yeah, I didn't rush to see this is what I'm saying. It was still on a new release shelf because that was my MO as I'd walk into the video store and the one I went to had like five walls of new release films and I'd just walk at A to Z and pick movies and one day I picked the dark half and I remembered thinking it was kind of dry, you know? I, I remembered thinking it had nothing memorable about it and I could barely remember the movie coming back to it. This is my first time watching it since probably when I watched it the first time, 94, 95. Oh, and see, I when we were covering all those Romero Living Dead movies, I was inspired and just decided I was going to watch everything that Romero ever made. And so I watched it in a slew of films at that time and remember thinking that it, it wasn't a Romero film. It wasn't even that it was bad. It was just impersonal. It didn't carry the stamp and the humor that I associated with his most entertaining films. And it is the film that got him kicked out of America as far as business went. He filmed this like so many of his movies in the Pittsburgh area. And after this, he would never be able to afford shooting in the States again. And all his work was Canadian. Mm. All of those later Living Dead films we reviewed, Blame Canada. And yet this still had a video game tie-in. I just had to laugh when I found this out. How do you make this into a video game? Tommyknockers, I could see. You know, you're battling dolls. People shoot lipstick lasers. There's a Coke machine in boss. That's some shit you could have fun with. But what is this game? Just a birding game? Do you? Yeah, do you dodge birds the whole game? <laughs> I watched a walkthrough. I couldn't find it to play. Arnie, did you get a copy? What was it released on? PC and I believe Amiga. Yeesh. Well, you know what? It actually, by design, it's the kind of game I like. It reminded me of Maniac Mansion, if you remember that adventure game. It was one of the early, you're wandering around, putting a mystery together, collecting an inventory. They're adventure games. They consist more of talking to people and things. And honestly, I did download it. I did not know this existed until I was researching this movie. And the graphics are not bad. Mm-mm. I will throw out there, though, for some reason, in 1993, they just decided to do this. Nightbreed was getting a trilogy of fucking games, and they had already planned a Dark Half sequel called The Dark Half Endsville. What? Yeah. I mean, this could barely work as a game. You were wandering around Castle Rock trying to figure out why all your friends were dead. And at the end, I kid you not, it ends with you sitting down with your dark half trying to, like, brainstorm the best novel for the character. And, like, you would <laughs> click between three possible storylines. If he didn't like it, he'd slash part of your face off. And eventually, if you told the right story, the birds came in and whisked him away. <laughs> Was this before that Roger Rabbit Nintendo game where you had to tell jokes and pick the right punchlines? Sounds a lot like that. It does sound a lot like that. And uh, again, I I don't know. I was laughing, but it wasn't because of the (laughs) punchlines. What I'll say is my favorite PC game of all time is Gabriel Knight. And it's basically this exact same game. You're in New Orleans in that one, and you are investigating murders. And you just talk to people and figure out clues and find things. And there's maybe two action scenes in the whole game. So I loved that because it was tightly written. And they eventually adapted that game into a novel because it was that good of a story. And so it can work, but I didn't play this to the end. I can say that its interface was a little clunky and, you know, it's no The Mist. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) So, Arnie, why don't you give him a plot, and we'll talk about the dark half. Thad Beaumont, played by Timothy Hutton, is a middling author and creative writing teacher. His novels got great reviews, but never sold very well. That is, until Thad took on the pen name George Stark. With the freedom of the non de plume, Thad writes violent, salacious crime novels and they become bestsellers. When the movie starts, Thad is back trying to write a more respectable novel under his own name again. He's supported by his wife Liz, played by Amy Madigan, who never cared for Stark's books or how Thad acted while writing them, like he was a different person. The final nail is put in Stark's coffin when a blackmailer shows up demanding money or he'll reveal that George Stark is really Thad. Rather than pay the blackmailer, Thad and Liz go public with a secret identity and say George Stark is dead. They even pose for a photo by a mock tombstone for Stark. Soon after, all the people involved with the end of the Stark books start to be killed. The blackmailer, the magazine photographer who took the graveyard photo, Thad's literary agents, they're all killed in brutal ways. Local Sheriff Alan Pangborn, played by Michael Rooker, thinks Thad may be tied to the murders. And Thad can't tell the sheriff the truth, that he has a psychic connection with the killer. See, the killer is George Stark come to life, and also played by Timothy Hutton. Their psychic connection occurs when sparrows flood the sky. Stark needs Thad to keep writing George Stark books, or Stark will die. His body is decomposing with each passing day that Thad isn't writing. Stark finally takes Liz, as well as Lyd and Thad twin children, hostage. He can't kill Thad without killing himself, so Stark threatens Thad's family. Thad agrees to start to write again and teach George to write, and only the winner of this will survive. Finally, Thad and George get into hand-to-hand combat, and Thad stabs Stark in the throat with a pencil, and the sparrows break into the house and tear the flesh from Stark's bones, carrying away all the pieces of the body. Pangborn witnesses some of this and knows Thad is innocent of the murders, and Thad and his family seem safe as credits roll. You mentioned some of this is music by Christopher Young, but a lot of it is Elvis Presley singing Are You Lonesome Tonight? A strange choice because I don't think that song's very scary, but then it hit me like a thunderbolt. Elvis had a twin. Do people know this? He had a stillborn twin brother. No, I did not know that. Yeah, Jesse Presley came stillborn, and that's just part of his legacy. And of course, Elvis himself kind of has those two personas. On one hand, he's the Southern gentleman who made black music safe for white America, and then he's the fat cokehead who sold sex and stretchy leather in Vegas. So two sides of Elvis. It's not a perfect model for Thad and George, but it, I guess it sets some kind of mood for this duality. Yeah, they love really obvious symbols of duality throughout this film. Like, we're literally just going to have twins from Thad and his wife at one point. And it's just a thing that they did in the early 90s. If you remember that Robert Downey Jr. Annette Benning movie In Dreams, they tried to make Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree eerie. And mm. the Rolling Stones' Time is on My Side and Denzel Washington and John Goodman's Fallen. I mean, they just were picking any song. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I guess the boomers, you know, getting it sold back to them. All your shit is bad and scary. <laughs> Anyway, we're going to start in 1968. Thad Beaumont is 11 years old, a twin number. We'll see him again. He's 33, two threes. He's a kid in Castle Rock who is starting to write Stephen King stories. He's got Skeleton Crew's Here There Be Tigers as his first foray into writing. Yeah, that's one of King's first stories written. He wrote it back in high school. It wasn't his first published, but one of the first. Here, what we're supposed to take is that... 
the act of writing is bringing another being to life with that. Just the fact that he starts writing at a young age, he also starts getting blackouts. His writing has caused a parasitic twin. If you're not familiar with this, this really does happen. Sometimes you have twins, and one kind of just absorbs the other in the womb, and it lives inside them as just a few cells, or what have you, or sometimes it can become vestigial, and you can have extra appendages. We talked about it with Juwan Black Ghost. Oh yeah, I guess we did. (laughs) Well, that's what happened here, and the twin was in Thad's brain, and when he wrote, that twin got really excited and started to grow. <laughs> oh, and I like this idea of a writer having to take on a different persona. I remember there's a comic book writer that I really like, Jason Aaron. I remember reading an interview that he gave where he said, if you want to be a great writer, you got to act like everyone you know is dead. You can't worry about what your parents are thinking. If you're you know, writing really violent or sexual stuff, Like you have to just be this person that has no connections. And you're not a family man. You're none of that because that's going to hold you back. And you're going to censure yourself because of that. So you know, here it's an 11-year-old kid, but whatever. I like this idea of, you know, another being coming out of someone that wants to be a writer. And it's as good as anything. I mean, I think King always talks about one of his least favorite questions is, where do you get your ideas? <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. They just, it is like, you know, when you're creative writing, I'm sure everyone's attempted it. You do end up talking to yourself and wondering, who is this person that I'm speaking to? That it manifests as some brother that could have been, but is a part of me. That's cool. You know he's bad because he's growing teeth and they have cavities. And that eyeball. I mean, it was in the book that there was an eye in the brain, but I didn't know if they could pull that off with the budget, honestly. I know good makeup effects could do this in the 90s, but that cataract-laden blind eye that's like turning and looking around, that is truly creepy. Yeah, I, I said there. I only felt like Romero was around for this film for one scene at the end. Here's the other moment. This part got me excited, like an eye and a brain. Okay, we're, we're going to go with just really gross out kind of stuff. And no, we're not going to get anything really gross till the very end. But yeah, this eye and a brain moving around, looking at this nurse freaking her out was fun. And there is some kind of synchronicity with birds or more specifically sparrows. We saw that when he had his seizures, not only were sparrows landing on the telephone pole, but he was hearing chirping and tweeting in his head and here as they're doing the brain surgery the nurse that couldn't hang with the albino eye runs to the nurse's station and all of a sudden banging against the window are hundreds and hundreds of sparrows stark sparrows birds is that why he picked birds i still don't know why this is about sparrows Well, there's also, and they go into it in this movie, how there is the theory of the psychopomp, you know, from Greek myth that carries spirits from the living world to the dead. I think that's part of it. It's a little forced, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it just feels like King, like, hey, let's throw the birds in here as well. I do feel like that is a King technique, is he just takes something and he's like, I'm going to make this scary. If I bring it up long enough, it'll be some cute commercial jingle. I could just sing this slinky song, keep inserting it at certain parts in the book, and it will take on new meanings until it is a part of the terror. I just feel like he writes that way, obsessively, really, maniacally returning to the same things again and again. And here it's birds, for better or for worse. I don't like birds. They're scary to me. Sure. 
it works better on the page and not just because the effects here are really god awful when it comes to the birds yeah there's like one good shot of the birds and it's right about at the opening credits where it's a practical shot of a whole bunch of birds in a tree and then they all fly away at once that's a great shot and every other bird in this movie sucks yeah, I think part of the problem, too, and like, okay, they want to go with this Greek myth or whatever, is that they're sparrows. They're not scary. Like ravens, crows, vultures, those are scary. Sparrows, they're cute. You get them tattooed on you. Yeah, even Hitchcock. I mean, there was a sense of humor to the birds when birds attack. It was acknowledged that it was a little bit funny to watch Tippy Hedren get pecked in the head. But at any rate, we'll quickly move from this bizarre event to seeing this character as an adult doing what else? Being a college professor, teaching creative writing, talking about the duality of the fiction writer. I don't know that that's necessarily true about all fiction writers. I have to think that Tuesdays with Mori guy Mitch Album isn't really keeping a whole lot of demons at bay. Yeah, it's assuming all fiction writers are introverts for one thing and that they keep all of their, and it's a stereotype. You know, all my fantasies come out when I type on the page. Maybe yes, maybe so. It's more important, the language that, that he talks about. He goes, you got to give your inner self the car keys. And of course, the sports car is going to be part of the George Stark mythos later. The, the black 66 tornado is a part of why he's so threatening. So they're just kind of setting up the idea that at least for Thad, the way that he works in order for him to get stuff onto the page and have it relate to people is to allow his id free reign on the typewriter. I understand while reading the book why Thad uses a pseudonym of George Stark is because, you know, King did Richard Bachman. And it's even said in the book that Thad wants to see if his books would sell better under another name, which makes no sense because his original books weren't selling that great. I don't know why you'd want to distance yourself but I was thinking about an author I've interviewed on Star Wars Action News who was a horror writer named Joe Schreiber. He now writes children's fiction, like young adult novels and even young kiddie novels. I mean, he transitioned. He went from writing dark horror to having a website called YourScaryDaddy.com where he was writing like Goosebumps type stuff to now just writing the equivalent of Llama Llama Mad at Mama books. And... It's all under the name Joe Schreiber. Why couldn't Thad just write a crime novel that was pulpy and keep his name on it? Yeah, your question is, who does it hurt for him to, yeah, write whatever he wants under the same name? Or if he wants to have his side brand, is it a scandal if it comes out? I mean, it wasn't when we found out that Anne Rice wrote a bunch of pornographic novels. It was like, well... Okay, I mean, Interview with a Vampire has a sexual content. This is not that strange. Yeah, that's the weird thing. When Fred Clausen approaches him after this class and says, I know your secret. Really? Can you blackmail someone for that? It feels like, what's the big deal? The only thing I can, to his defense, that I can think of at the time is we were really horribly scandalized by Millie Vanilli. People were sending those CDs back. When we found out those buff guys in the music video were not the ones singing, Girl, You Know It's True, they were out on their ass and we, we were done. But yeah, I don't think it's the same thing for authors. I agree. This guy wanting the blackmail, I think that handles it the exact right way. Like, you know, it's less salacious. The thing I thought about when this happened is, do you guys remember when David Letterman had to go on the David Letterman show and stand in front of a live studio audience and say, I cheated on my wife and my girlfriend is pregnant? 
it is kind of the same thing because he did it because somebody came to him and blackmailed him and said, I know about your girlfriend, and if you don't pay me this money and pay me a regular salary from here on out, I'm going to tell the press. Yeah, but I could imagine people saying, I'm not going to watch that David Letterman because of what he did again. I can't imagine anyone saying, I'm not going to read those machine books because it was written by a mild-mannered college professor. Thad's (laughs) going to get more blowback from his academic, upper-crust, highbrow novels that supposedly he's writing versus these, yeah, the machine, whatever this character is. Maybe part of the problem is we don't know how bad they are. I mean, are they really filthy? Like, are they unprintable? Like, if they were, I wouldn't imagine that they're bestsellers. I don't think of, like, the top of the charts being filled with descriptors for sexual organs and a viscera, you know? Like, I feel like you need some story always to appeal to people. You can't get too scandalous or scandalous. So maybe it would have been helpful to see like he's watching a movie of one of those books or something like that. So we could just, is it an Arnold Schwarzenegger? That's what it felt like. I get the idea that this, yeah, Alex Machine is either a Charles Bronson or, I mean, the character in the novel is actually described as kind of looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger, blonde. So maybe that's what we're to go with. Here's my question. When King was doing the Richard Bachman thing, did he have fake photos on those Richard Bachman books? He did on Thinner. Yes. he. Okay. That, because it, that was like one of the first to get a hardcover printing. And you know, the other ones, they hadn't sold well. They were put on paperback racks. But because King was really big in 85, this publisher for Thinner hired an actor to pose on the back. And they wrote a fake bio about this guy and everything. And Yeah, because one thing I did do, because Fred points out, oh, you got this fake picture on here. So I watched the film and I went back. I'm like, let me go back and look at that picture. Does that look like Stark? And no, it, it they don't really show it, but it just a different person. I, I think that would have been kind of cool if somehow your Stark persona took on the looks of this fake photo they put on the book. Well, you know what he looks like is he's got this mustache. The author's photo on the back looks like the front cover anti-hero. This Alexis machine character has a mustache. He's this hardcore macho guy that beats on women and kills men and there was a whole line of like paperbacks I would remember seeing at the bookstore that was aimed at the guns and ammo crowd. So I, I guess that's what they're kind of going for. I got the impression that this guy was the antagonist of the book, even though all the passages we read are about him. It seems to me like it's almost that these books are like the Friday the 13th series, because there's even the line, I'm back from the dead and you don't seem happy to see me. So I think like at the end of each book, they beat this guy down and then he comes back in the next book. Yeah, the traditional anti-hero in which you root for them because they kill bad guys, but they're not a good guy. That's what the way I take it. You know who I think this might be based on? I don't know if you've heard of the Parker novels. I think they're written like in the 50s or 60s. And I believe a pseudonym was used. The pseudonym was Richard Stark. And it's about, yeah, like this kind of criminal, but you go on his journeys and they're very salacious and he's screwing women and hitting them and and killing other mobsters. The fact that they're both Starks, I don't know. I think there's something there. You're dead on, Jacob. I don't know if you listened to my review of Rage on Books and Nachos, but King got the name Richard Bachman from a Richard Stark novel he was reading right then, and then also Bachman Turner Overdrive he was listening to right then. I mean, he was on the spot to come up with a name, and he said since he took Richard from Richard Stark for Richard Bachman, he'd use Stark from Richard Stark for 
this fictional character. And in the book, we even get some passages of a George Stark book. And it sounds like what you described Richard Stark's writing to be. But yeah, it's a weak conflict. It's a hard sell to say, I'm going to ruin you by putting this out in the press. I would think it would only sell more books, but it gets this author talking about the future of his pseudonym. And it's his wife that says, well, why don't you get rid of him? I don't even like this guy anyway, which is strange. Here's one way the book is better than the movie. We're discussing all of this stuff that happens when this blackmailer comes and everything. All this is done by page one of the book. We're told in flashback, but we don't have to spend chapters and chapters with calling the agents and asking the agents, are you okay with this? And the discussion between the husband and the wife, they just have like a sentence of Liz was all too happy to get rid of this and that it was People Magazine's idea. They, they go into a little bit too much detail about the People Magazine cover. But the first 20 to 30 minutes of this movie is extrapolated from brief flashbacks and are done by page one. The book gets so much better into the story than this movie does. You think that's a good thing? I kind of like setting up all these people that are going to be killed. Like, you need to meet the people before they get slashed, right? Yeah, but it goes on too long. It just feels like you really get into the minutiae of going back and forth with the publisher and the publisher's ex-wife and the photographer and too many details. Like, yeah, introduce the characters, let us know who they are, and then kill them. The thing about the book is it's an almost unreliable narrator, third-person, strict point-of-view story. We don't get to know these people, but we also don't revel in their deaths. We find out after the fact that they're dead, by and large. I mean, I think this movie kind of gets there, too. Is it an actual twin that's coming for him, or is he finally acting on his own impulses? What is real? What is not? Psychological thrills. But Liz knows about a time when he's written these machine novels and been violent, but we never see any evidence of that. I mean, how bad do you think it was? Not bad enough to make her leave. I don't think it was very bad at all. I think she said he got mean. Some of the things he said. I don't think he ever, like, raised a hand to anybody in the family. I just think he got pissy. I mean, that happens to me. If After a long day of editing, sometimes I snap at Marjorie and she doesn't deserve it, and I feel bad about it. I think it was something like that. See, I think you need to give the movie, like, and maybe this is too dark, but maybe, like, Thad was responsible for killing their first child because he was drunk and writing those novels. Like, a reason why she really wants him to stop, and that maybe, like, they're on their second chance. They're trying to work at this thing, would put more stakes at the idea of we're going to bury this alter ego. Yeah, but uh, there's nothing book or film that even begins to imply that. And yeah, you could say that's a mistake. But King, I said this when I reviewed Dr. Sleep, and some people pushed back on it. But King is the king of the bland, heroic guy. Just this white, good guy who maybe he's tempted to do bad things. But ever since The Shining, the main guy never really does bad things. They just are good for good sake. This includes Stu from The Stand. It includes the father from Firestarter. It includes the main army guy from Under the Dome. All of them just feel very generic and cookie cutter. And that's what King is comfortable writing and what a very large audience is comfortable reading. They don't want to get into those shades of darker gray. Besides, you can't have a dark half unless you're the light half. 
Yeah, but he never comes off as a light half to me in this. I think whatever you can do to make Timothy Hutton imposing would help the fear factor in this movie. Timothy Hutton is an Oscar-winning actor too soon. He had the good fortune of being in Ordinary People, a movie that was beloved from 1980, and he was the teenage son living in a household where the older brother had died by suicide. It's an emotional film. He was able to benefit maybe by no one else being in his category, but he won a statue and then never lived up to that legacy. And I do feel like, yeah, a stronger actor here, someone to imply that they have a dark half uh, would help. Well, part of the reason I think he may not have gotten work is apparently from every single behind the scenes feature on the Shout Factory feature laden Blu-ray, he's an asshole. He's a fucking asshole who is totally method. When he was playing George Stark, he had to have a separate makeup trailer. George's was different than Thad's trailers. He filled it with liquor, and people said that they'd go into the trailer, and it just smelled bad and if you didn't call him george if you called him tim he would snarl at you no this is not the movie you go method for come on well it is if you're successful at it i mean i wanted to call him (laughs) beetlejuice by the end he looks (laughs) nothing like fat elvis maybe but like he's not scary and he even quit this movie for a few days like late into production i don't know why he came back i'm guessing lawyers threatened to sue his ass over lost (laughs) shoot but you know again i've said this on the show you gotta have the good looks you gotta be able to act but you've also gotta kind of be nice to people if you're a real dick then you have to be mega talented in order to keep coming back to work and i think this guy is a mega dick without the talent to really back it up and so he ends up doing things like the dark half or the box office i mean again you can get away with a lot if you sell tickets but this guy in 1990 even much less 93 was no star In fact, Taps got stolen from him by Tom Cruise and Sean Penn. I mean, everything that he did afterwards. You're saying he was no star? Is he a star now? I don't know this name. Yeah, again, he's an Oscar-winning actor for one of his first movies and never lived up to it. And he was not the first choice. First choice was Gary Oldman, but he had some kind of visa issue. Well, obviously a guy with plenty of dark half. In fact, does he have a light (laughs) half? He might have trouble playing Thad. (laughs) And the same thing, I think, with the second person. Willem Dafoe was number two. Yeah. Both of them are interesting choices. Yeah. He got to do that in Raimi's Spider-Man. Yeah. You'd have a better film. Right now, just going to flat out say you'd have a much better film, no matter all the other technical problems with this movie, if you had a lead performance. Because it's all about the performance, right? It's all about our ability to believe that... This guy can get scary when he starts writing this trashy novel. And yeah, he needs to let that go and go and teach his classes and be a good father to these new twins. So walk me through this. And it's, again, the same in the movie as the book. But he has this parasitic twin that left an eyeball and some teeth and some hair in his brain. That's dug out when he's a young child. And we find out later that his parents felt really bad for this dead twin and treated it like a human being and did a burial and all of that. Arnie, you work at a hospital. They can hand over body parts like that? No, you can't have your surgical things. When I had my tonsils removed, I really wanted them. And no, no, (laughs) not an option. Uh, It's called medical waste. 
But I, I suppose if you say it's a baby, I mean, they do give you, you know, stillborns to bury. I was just about to say, you know, yeah, I think that because it is considered their child, what they did was they took it and buried it like a child. But what they told their son is you had a tumor. They never said you had a twin in your head. They not only buried it, but they buried it in Thad's plot that they had purchased for him. Uh, did they go six feet down like to bury these parts? Was there a little shoebox they put the eye and the teeth in? I'm assuming. What are they going to find when they dig that up to bury Thad? Well, it's going to be there to manifest and grow and become what we're going to see come out of this mock tomb funeral thing yeah that's the thing is what comes out of the ground comes out of the mock tomb it doesn't come out of like where the body parts were buried right no 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 the mock funeral is being held on the family plot so it is the same space okay yeah because they make a big deal about we don't step or pose on the other graves but we have this plot for you that's unused so there's no body in there so we're not disturbing anything is this the first time is it because of this that George Stark is embodied into something like it, it feels like disturbing this grave is the inciting incident for him to taking on a, a physical form. And again, trying to tell him that he's dead. It gets undersold and it becomes clear later is not only is he retiring the pseudonym, but he's retiring the character. I mean, he wouldn't have to do that, right? He could just keep cranking out those machine novels of their bestsellers in his own name. But he's he's letting all of that go. And it's that character that's a part of him that's now going to insist, you're not going to bury me, I'm going to bury you. You know, a living dead story. We now have a zombie. And the zombie, as you said, that looks kind of like Elvis. I mean, once again, it's not necessarily described that way in the book, in the book. No, he's blonde and big and Arnold-like. Yeah, he's a blonde guy and everything. But here, George Romero must have be very familiar with King's work. He's another fucking greaser. Yeah. I thought he was trying to take on a greaser persona. And I will say that I'm kind of glad they didn't just take Timothy Hutton and slick back his hair. I thought that's maybe what they did when they show the first murder. But I don't know. I guess they put on some kind of pompadour and maybe some prosthetic. It doesn't look exactly like him. I, I was really worried like they're going to try to play this up as like he's just got an identical twin. That's his dark half. And I'm like, oh, please don't go there. Please give me some surprise. So I like that. Yeah, the killer's going to look different. It, is it someone else going after him it, or is this all in I didn't even realize it was the same actor when I watched it the first time. I didn't either until I looked at the credits. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, they built his jaw up. They built his forehead up. And say what you will about him being an asshole, but I think his performance as George Stark is completely different. I did not know the first time I watched it that it was a dual role. <laughs> I had the exact opposite feeling. I thought, well, you can obviously tell it's the same actor, so would you conclude what the writer, the People Magazine writer that's there at the scene, his first thought when he's hearing about the writing process is, oh, have you ever thought about schizophrenia? <laughs> this sounds like you're the same person with two different sides like maybe we're supposed to watch this movie and think that at some point you're going to realize oh there's nobody that came out of the ground this guy just 
you know, has good alibis. I'll just say this. I'm glad there's a supernatural element because this movie's too long and like we're not going to see that twist that it's a different person or a different looking person until the 45 minute mark. And I'm like, oh, I, I just don't want this. You know, it's American Psycho or something like that. If that's all they got, this is a huge waste of time. At least it's a fun little twist that the killer is someone else or at least looks like someone else. It, it throws you off a bit. And the first person to be killed is the photographer who, you know, was this annoying character. Homer. Annoying? What are you talking about? I can't wait for his book on teddy bear funerals to get published. (laughs) I I, I bet that's already been done by this point. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) This guy's the first to be killed. He is driving down the road at night and he sees a hitchhiker and he says, who's out at this hour? But then he kind of looks like he might recognize this person. And, you know, watching it this time, I realize he thinks it might be Thad. Pulls over and he gets pulled from the truck and his prosthetic leg falls off. And then off screen, he's beaten with it to death. In the background is a USPS station, the post office, that then turns off its lights if you shouldn't be out hitchhiking at that hour, what the fuck post office is open? <laughs> I thought it was a body shop. No, it said post office. I read Bob's body shop in the neon. <laughs> and I wouldn't... Hold on. I'm, I'm scrolling just, through the just movie Just pull here. up the movie. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the only way to settle this. Oh my God, it's both. Okay. It is Bob's body <laughs> shop and a U.S. post office. Okay, all right. So the, our, both our halves put it together. And, Duality. Okay. Which was the dark half? <laughs> What the hell body shop is a post office? Hey, man, I don't know why you have a fucking truck stop that serves pizza either. Fuck you, Casey's. I'm never eating it. It's Oh, get the taco pizza. It's fucking good. Never, never eating gas station pizza. Never. Seriously, that taco pizza is the bomb. It's got Doritos. Never, 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 never. So, yes, I'm not going to mail my, my letters from there either. <laughs> Here's my problem. You, you have a guy beat to death with a leg. I want to see that. Look, this is about a killer. I want some gore. I want some blood. I, I, I want something. This feels so dry that we're going to tease you and then jump to the next scene and just show you the aftermath. Because this movie's got nothing else to offer. At least show me someone getting beat to death with a leg. Some of the problems got to be, maybe it's the budget, and maybe they ran out and couldn't film it, but I've got to believe some of it is it's 1990, and the MPAA is not kind to horror movies, and and just doesn't let gore go on there. They probably did have these scenes, and just felt like they either got cut, or we can't use them. Yeah, you could just copy and paste that complaint for every death scene in this until the very end, then then we get a good one, finally. There's a few that are more stylish, I'll put it that way. I do feel like later, he'll do some Hitchcockian tricks and some lighting tricks i watched a work print cut of this that was on some crappy crappy vhs it was really hard to watch it was a dub of a dub of a dub of a dub of a dub the work print was two hours and four minutes so just a couple more minutes than the regular one although there were no credits and things so i think there was maybe five or six minutes extra footage There are extra phone calls between Tad and George, and yeah, it it wasn't even a feature on the Shout Factory thing, but I was able to get my hands on this thing, and oof. Oh, interesting. So you probably can answer all these things. Yeah, there's some extra gore on some of the kills for sure that I bet the MPAA didn't like, but on this first kill, bludgeoning with the leg, I think Romero just wanted to be coy, you know, build up the suspense before we actually see a kill on screen. We imply one off screen. Okay. Yeah, this middle portion is where we get a rapid succession of all the people that went to the 
photo shoot commemorating the death of George Stark are now going to get payback. And George Stark is going to steal this photographer's truck. This is the part that I get confused at. He drives across state lines to a used car lot and then finds a black Toronado. Is that what happened? I thought he already had the car and I don't know, he just ditched it there. I'm not quite sure. And I feel like, again, there was stuff left out from the book. And so I feel like they just let that detail go. It's in there. I mean, Stark was on his way to New York to kill all the people there. And they found the truck he stole in Connecticut. And that's where the sheriff said he stole the Tornado. So it's in there. It's just they don't make a huge point of it. The point is, everyone immediately fingers it's got to be Thad, and they can find his fingerprints on the truck, and he was in New York. It's a shaky alibi. I'm not exactly sure why Sheriff Pangborn is kind enough to let him walk free. Yeah, they, he shows up with other cops like, you're wanted for murder, we have all this evidence. Like, he doesn't even post bail. They let him go. It's more in the book that he has a very rock-solid alibi, and then the cop comes by later with the beer after being convinced it can't be this guy. But again, I don't know why at any point in The Outsider, Jason Bateman's going to jail. Like, I'm sorry, we have your fingerprints in blood. You're going to jail. It doesn't matter if you will have a video copy of you at a conference somewhere else. Like, you're going to jail. And it is kind of strange that they don't take Ted... I guess they want to keep him as a possible suspect as more people die. Well, then it could have been him because all of a sudden this guy in New York that was blackmailing him winds up exactly dead how he described he wanted him dead with his dick removed and stuffed down his throat gangland style. And sparrows are flying again, written in blood on his wall. Yeah, earlier when Thad had that run-in with Fred, he said, I'm going to write you this most gruesome death in a book. And I thought that was going to be the direction the stake. Like, whatever he writes down in a book is somehow going to happen in real life. But no, he does die that way. Subscribing again. I know they're not going to show us get his dick cut off and shoved in his mouth or whatever. But this film feels very neutered because I'm not getting any visceral thrills or any psychological thrills. Yeah, there's a lot of chatter. And I think... The main actors here are doing pretty good. Michael Rooker in a very early role. I mean, I I had to look up how old this guy is because we saw him <laughs> in, briefly in Sea of Love. Now here he is three years later in this. He's had his big breakthrough. Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is what put him on the map. And that was several years before this. Yeah, that, I did see that was, I think, 85, so five years before this was filmed, eight before it was released. He's 65 years old. He looks very good for 65, I will say. And he, his career of a character actor has just been throughout. But he, I think, as this nice cop that's sort of buddy-buddy, but also a little threatening, I'm not sure that in this movie he ever gets his due he's, he's there because he's in the book he does a lot more in the book but in this movie I don't know that he brings a whole lot but I like what Timothy Hutton is bringing in both performances and I like what we're getting out of Liz Amy Madigan Field of Dreams wife she has a little spark I enjoy her scenes she doesn't do much also Oscar nominated for earlier work. Yeah, I mean, they got actors that are more respectable than Mangler 3. I should probably <laughs> retract some of my disdain for Timothy Hutton. I'm just saying he's just not good enough to really carry the weight of this entire movie on his shoulders where I'm watching, wow, I just want to see him work as a performer. 
here's the thing, Stuart. I don't know if there is a movie for him to carry on his shoulders because I think this is a perfectly competently shot film. Like, uh, I don't have any problems with that. It's just the story that's being told. It's not being told in a great way, in an exciting way, in a gory way. It feels very dry to me. Well, I mean, again, the mystery being teased, and you didn't read the book, so you should be more tantalized than I am, is, is this guy just crazy? Is he going to snap and kill somebody else? Or is he the victim? You know, once he starts writing the same message that was on the wall on his copy of his new book, I think you're starting to think, yeah, this guy's cuckoo. I mean, he's literally hearing birds and stuff chirp in his head. Like, this guy's Norman Bates. I'm on to this movie. I know that he's actually behind all of these dastardly deeds and killing his agents. Did you think that, Jacob? Because I know I had read the book first. I read it when it came out. But my thinking is we're in a Stephen King book. And so The Shining just exists. Yeah, because it's Stephen King, I'm expecting, yeah, he's going to have some kind of connection with this killer. But again, once I see the killer's face and see it doesn't look like that, I'm like, okay, there's some kind of ghost or goblin or some Stephen King thing going on here. If this was another author or an original film, then maybe I would have been wondering. But it because it's King, I just expect the supernatural you're killing me guys when we get to the ex-wife agent you know there's two agents because they're in the middle of a divorce and the next kill we have is miriam coming home the whole point of that is she's being tortured by somebody we only see in black boots and when she's finally about to get her throat slit the camera pans up and that's when you go oh it is timothy hutton you guys didn't do that no because i didn't recognize that as timothy hutton i thought it was a different actor until i saw the credits me either then I guess that would be a very different remainder of the movie because I feel like that moment tells you, oh, this is very much the same guy. He didn't even look that different to me. Oh, he did to me. (laughs) I think here's a key. I'm not familiar with Timothy Hutton. If he knocked on my door trying to sell me encyclopedias, I wouldn't blink twice. I mean, I've seen ordinary people, but I don't know this guy and I don't know his face. Anyway, but when we cut back and the sheriff is asking his questions... It is Thad that's saying, well, let me give you a description of this guy. He looks like me. He's got blue eyes like me. He's about my height. He, you know, uses the name of my pseudonym. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that you guys are really supposed to see that connection that's called the dark half, right? They're twins. Yeah, no, I get that, but I thought the way they were going was, and, and what you're saying is, the mystery should be, is it the same person? Is it always Thad? And I do think, even once you see Stark's face, like, he goes up to this publisher's ex-wife and is like, call Thad, and you get an answering machine. So, okay, maybe that is Thad, take it on some demonic form. But again, because it's based on a King property, I just expect Supernatural. And not all King stories are supernatural, so that may ironically cause you some problems later on because there are some stories he does write that are earthbound, most of them, again, after this point. Yeah, like Misery. I love Misery, the the, the novel, and that I don't remember any supernatural stuff in there. True. Stuart, watching this and trying to figure it out, do you think this movie plays like a postmodern psycho, like it's playing with us that he could be the killer? Because the way that Hutton is playing it, the way the story is being told. I don't see in any way, even if you had Timothy Hutton looking more like the same character as the killer, I still would think twins or clones or something. At no point would I believe that Thad is the murderer. I guess what I would argue is, 
when we pan up from Miriam and we see that it's Timothy Hutton, it looks nothing like the author on the back of the George Stark novel. And so we have to conclude that, wow, they're sim- they, they look too similar to be different people. Would, again, be my conclusion watching that moment. <laughs> they did not look similar, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is just that is a moment that is going to matter to you. Like how you interpret that is how the rest of this movie is going to feel. See, yeah, because in your mind, this is a psycho thriller that's really something would be ahead of its time. I mean, we'd be seeing this in movies like Identity or... Uh, I wish I had never seen that. Yeah, I don't no, don't call it ahead of its time. Again, Psycho did it in 1960. But to do it I, uh, in a postmodern way where they're teasing us about it. But yeah, otherwise you're just going to see this, as I did, as a serial killer movie. And coming out two years after Silence of the Lambs, this was definitely where my mind was, was this guy is our Buffalo Bill. So here, I like the idea that's floated, and it's it's emphasized again more in the book. It could just be a real big Stark fan, like mm-hmm. somebody who starts to think he's Stark. I was wondering if that was going to be one of the reveals. And that would be very misery, too, as you're not writing my character anymore, and I'm going to become that character. And again, I, maybe you should have kept that Fred Clawson character around and teased him as a possible suspect. Maybe you, you start by killing the agents first or, yeah, make it a whodunit. I think that would involve people more. Instead, again, I think they're trying to tell you, you've seen Psycho, right? You know that Mother and Norman are the same person. That's got to be what's going on here. And so I, I think you would be comfortably in that mode. The next death is the writer. He's stepping into his hallway. It looks like the set of either Creep Show or Argento Suspiria because it's got all this cool Technicolor lighting. It's actually the nicest lighting moment in the film when we got all those multicolored lights and he gets his ponytail cut off and his forehead slashed and eventually gets his head punted into the radiator. And you are right, Stuart. A couple of these deaths, especially the literary agent one, do go on longer, have a bit more gore, have extra things in there. I can't decide what was cut just because it's extraneous and what might have been cut for the MPAA, possibly a little bit of both. But there's a few extra cuts here and there with a razor, not like cut with the film. But a lot of them, they're just to be clever. I mean, like there's that fake out where the other agent gets the call from the man who cut your wife's throat and he runs to get a cigarette of all things. We see that window washer lift descending behind him. We think, oh my God, he's about to get whacked. And it turns out, no, it's just a window washer. Like, you know, like they exchange fuck yous and go on. I, I think that it is more Hitchcockian. It feels like that's the more mature, you know, horror is the trash genre, but thrillers are the respected art form that's the higher elevated art form of horror yeah i guess i just don't see this uh, demonic guy with a pompadour <laughs> running around slashing people's <laughs> throats as a thriller like this seems like horror trash to me and i mean that in the most affectionate way i you know i just recently have you guys seen slugs like a horror movie about slugs eating people it's great it's stupid it's trashy but it's fun so i i say that affectionately if this was a better thriller then yes i'd be into this but it's not this should be a trashy horror film with at least what i'm being presented on screen It's kind of skirting the line for me. Like, I feel like it is trying to be less bloody, less supernatural than some. But then we get these dumb dream sequences where, like, an oven explodes and the turkey is, like, leaking blood or whatever. (laughs) And you just go, what the hell is this? 
But keep in mind, like Romero made Creep Show, and so I think he every now and then he recognizes the need to go comic book and really give us a Grand Guinal kind of kill. And yeah, it, those are the fun parts of this movie. This movie is filmed by a guy who normally films period films like Howard's End and Room with a View, and like it has this dry, ashy quality. It's just not attractive to look at. We want the blood. Bring us the red. Yeah, apparently there was a lot of fighting between Romero and this guy, too. He he thought that getting somebody who'd done Merchant Ivory would bring a great look, and instead the cinematographer just did what he wanted, even if Romero didn't want it. Yeah, and I don't want it either. I think this movie looks bad. And this is from an Oscar-nominated cinematographer, so... Because it's Romero directing, I just usually associate him with cheaper productions where, you know, you don't expect things like decent lighting and that. So I'm like, oh, this looks perfectly fine. It's adequate. But at any rate, it's established that George does handwriting and Thad does his typewriter. And so when Thad takes that black beauty pencil in his hand, it's a psychic connection. All of a sudden he starts scrawling and he's communicating. And then, of course, George starts calling the house and really just baiting him. And it's really for the sheriff to try and determine, what do I do here? Like, <laughs> do I arrest this guy? Again, I don't know why he's not arresting Thad. I don't know why he's allowing cops to kind of half supervise him where he like goes inside a building and they stand outside and he can slip out the back. He's got too tight an alibi for a warrant. I mean, the book kind of goes into that, but I think just even watching this, if Thad didn't want to be in police custody for theoretically, say, his own protection or to give himself an alibi, they don't have enough to involuntarily take him in. I mean, fingerprints are not enough. I refuse to believe like your fingerprints in someone's blood and we have the body in multiple crime scenes. Like I just that's hard for me to swallow that that's not enough. Yeah. For one of the kills, the sheriff's like, oh, yes, you were in the same city and you were at this thing. But that was earlier and this happened later. Like so he doesn't have an airtight alibi every time. No, he definitely doesn't have an airtight alibi at all. And I feel like you want to portray the cops as like not sitting there debating, okay, what you're telling me is that this is not only a ghost, but a ghost of a man that never existed. Hmm. I mean, no, no local cop is going to entertain that notion. Your ass is going downtown. But at least that never says that. And do I understand the geography correctly? Rooker's character is from Maine, but Thad is living in New York, but he's like traveling down to like make these arrests and charges. No, no, they're all in Maine, but Thad went okay. to New York because that's where his agents are. Okay, at one point they say you're out of your jurisdiction, so maybe just crossed county line or something. Yeah, it is county. What it is is that they have a house in Ludlow, Maine, and then he has his summer home where he writes as George that we saw, you know, that's where it has the secret compartment room where the bookcase you know slides back and the typewriter is there that's in castle rock so i don't think this sheriff is from castle rock i think he's in ludlow it's the reverse this is the sheriff of castle rock and he actually plays the same year this came out needful things came out and this character is a huge part of needful things he's the lead of needful things and he's played by ed harris Mm. so the same year you can see this sheriff alan pangborn either michael rooker or ed harris and you can pick who's better I like Ed Harris more than Michael Rooker in general. So again, (laughs) I keep wishing you tell me Gary Oldman and all of this. And I'm thinking, man, there's a better movie here than what we're getting. Well, what we're getting here so far is kind of okay-ish. I mean, I'm just to, you know, feel my pulse halfway into this movie. I'm feeling like in terms of King, it's better than 
you know, half of them, at least oh, it's sure. not yeah, terrible, <laughs> you know, like it's like, all right, I'm mildly intrigued. But once they're finally ready to reveal the fact that there are two different, when does it come exactly? When do we know for sure? Is it when the doctor gets killed? I can't answer that because I always knew for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I just assumed that once we saw his face. So. Okay, all right, yeah, all right. So going from my theory that some people might believe that there is only Thad and that there is no George, I think you know when we have the doctor, he goes to see the guy that committed the brain surgery on him, and he tells him the full story about his twin, and then we see the other car show up and slash his throat while he's in the other room. And they start doing those parent trap tricks, or like David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, you know, where like they're <laughs> both in the same frame at the same time. When we do get the supernatural exposition from... I guess a professor, I'm like, who is this lady that's all of a sudden talking about all this stuff? And I'm like, oh, yeah, they showed her at the college earlier on. But that's when she starts talking about psychopomps and all that kind of stuff. Psychopomps and circumstance. Is yeah. that what they haven't heard there at college? And Julie Harris is a very enjoyable lead in the original Haunting. Like, she's in the 1963 movie as the star. It's kind of fun to see her here. The character is all kinds of stupid. I think, yeah, she's here to give credence to all of this bullshit supernatural stuff. Yeah. I have to ask you, Arnie, in that work print, she says something, and I'm shocked this never comes back. I thought this was going to be the end stinger. Next time I see you, we're a red coronation, so I know it's you. And so I thought for sure we were going to see Thad looking like Thad at the end, but not wearing that red coronation. But nope, that never comes back. Yeah, I hung on that one. I'm like, oh, that's clever. I thought that was the end of the movie. It should have been or something. Yeah, no, not even in the work print does that coronation come up again. Last shot of the work print is Stark being carried off by birds but we'll get to that it does feel like this movie just stopped but it does follow the book i mean I, I can't say that it feels that different from what was on the page except that it's getting really really kind of silly now like now that we're quote unquote reaching the good part i actually feel like they're condensing everything that was interesting about misery into a five minute standoff at a typewriter how many times have i said king has problems with endings um i'll give it this this one, he set up. He knew where he was going for the ending at the beginning, and a write-off works much better on page than it does on screen. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I mean, again, the, the, to see, like, this like, Beetlejuice-looking character, like, he's got the albino eyes like he did when he was inside the frontal lobe, and, like, he's scared literally of a blank page. I know that, like, that's a thing to be afraid of with writer's block, but no one is actually terrified Certainly not horror movie audiences <laughs> of staring at a blank page. I can't believe that they're trying to dramatize it in this way. You better write something or the birds are going to get you. As a freshman English major, I should have been afraid of that and I wasn't. <laughs> Yeah, it was confusing to me not knowing what this story was. I thought George Stark was writing these dark stories. So it is weird that all of a sudden he had writer's block at the end here and didn't know how to put a sentence together. It just ends up feeling like a Halloween episode of Full House because <laughs> like they keep cutting to the Michelle shots. They keep going to those twins of the like, babies, yeah. what are the babies doing? How are the babies interpreting all of this like writing and drinking booze and, and slashing they don't seem scared at all. Those babies are not crying. <laughs> yeah. I really feel like this is just where, yeah, Romero should have just known that it dramatically doesn't work and I need to do something different. Yeah. Again, he was gun shy. I think he had lost a lot of self-confidence. 
I think it kind of shows in this case. But yeah, this is not working. And I can't decide because the work prints no better. At what point did they just run out of money? At what point did it all just end? But they did reshoot the ending. They did have one thing in mind for the ending, and then they got the effects team together to do something else. Because what was supposed to happen is they have this tussle, and Stark gets stabbed in the neck, and then the sparrows were supposed to come and lift him up and carry him away because they're psychopomps and they're taking him back to the land of the dead. Nope, this is way better. I'm finally getting some good gore here as they peck this corpse and it's bloody, then it's a skeleton. Like, here's the one moment of true joy I had during this film. I'll side with that. Yeah, Romero really defends his original ending because on this Blu-ray, I got to see, like, early effects of it. It looked like shit. And he put storyboards, and I'm like, it looks crazy. Test audiences didn't like it. The studio, the bankrupt studio, said, why don't you just go back and have the birds rip him apart? (laughs) If if I would have watched this movie and it was this zombie Beetlejuice-looking guy just getting carried away by tiny little sparrows, oh, I would have been very angry. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, just Romero, you, you did creep show. How did that one end? Everyone was happy to see the cockroaches swarm. That you, we want to see a swarm here. And yeah, it's, you know, they're not like goodbye today's special effects standards. But yeah, it's quite fun to just watch this character be ripped apart and the birds breaking down the bookcase and whatever. It's silly. It's over the top. But yeah, at least it's comic book. And this movie has struggled to do everything to be taken seriously. But, you know, maybe it should have always embraced more of its darker comic book sensibilities. You say it doesn't look great, but for the time, when the birds are flying out, I've never seen Birdemic. Jacob, you bring it up a lot. Is this worse than Birdemic? Because this is bad. No, I think this is better than Birdemic. Birdemic is, I think that's intentionally awful, right? Like, I've never looked at the history behind it, but that is super bad. It's worse than the CGI ink splotch flying out of the window and into the sky. At least this is early CGI, so I kind of just go with it. Birdemic is, like, that's modern. Like, it's bad on purpose, I think. It's, like, literally they just copied and pasted birds, cloned them, and they all have the same movement. It's bad looking. This, I just go with it because it's 91, 93, whenever it came out. Yeah, I'm not even sure it's if it's computer graphics. Like, it feels like maybe just overlays. Yeah, I thought it was animated. Yeah, yeah. like... No, no, this was early CGI. You know, the Abyss had come out, and Romero and Orion were like, we can do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, again, it had been done. This ending feels very similar to Tippi Hedren. You guys ever seen The Birds, Alfred Hitchcock's movie? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like they were trying to do some kind of homage, and it's fun in that way. And that didn't have great effects either, just for the record. I'd be more forgiving in the 60s, I suppose. Sure. I don't know. I heard your James Bond reviews. (laughs) You didn't like when they sped up that film during chases in the 60s. Oh, that was shit. That was shit. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're going to have a problem with the bird effect. And poor Michael Rooker does nothing. He shows up at the very end. No, they all just lay on the ground so the birds don't get him. (laughs) What it is, is strange to me, is I kept waiting for the wife to have a moment because Thad had a dream sequence in which she was tied to a chair and her face was a jigsaw mask of porcelain that shattered and I kept waiting for that dream sequence to come to life. Well, they tease it, Stuart. When Thad walks into this home, that same Elvis song is playing. He looks at a vase that he saw cracking too. Like, they're making you think think that that dream was a real premonition of something. 
Right. And then it, like so much, including you mentioned the professor that's waiting for him to return with the coordination on his lapel. Like it just feels like, yeah, they didn't get to film the ending that they really wanted to do. No, no. This is bad. What, the birds fly into a black hole sun? It's, it, I don't even know what they flew into. <laughs> and again, I can't say they ran out of money scoring it. So I'm guessing they filmed everything. But I can't say that they didn't run over days and are like, we really don't need the reunion of that. And the professor. <laughs> Her character. Let's just end it on the high note of the excitement of they've won and credits roll. Nobody needs a denouement of this. But does anybody need this at all? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Dark Half? Jacob. My initial reaction was, here's a perfectly competently made film with an underwhelming story. And whether that's King's fault, whoever wrote this screenplay and adapted it, there is no dark half to this movie. And that is my problem. Either be a, a thrilling thriller or a gruesome horror film. This is kind of just skirting that line. It doesn't really know what it wants to be. It needs to commit. Like, be fat or be George. Be one of them. Ultimately, it's just kind of an unsatisfying story for me that's where it falls apart is the way the story is constructed because yeah I, I, obviously there's limitations with how they could do these bird effects and I wanted more gore and all that but ultimately the story is just kind of boring and, and that's my problem for me it, it doesn't explore this dark half this duality it, like you've said Stuart it, it feels more like this comic book horror film but without any of that gore or blood or any of that so it's kind of okay but it just doesn't bring me those thrills that I was looking for so it's a not recommend Stuart. yeah i think part of it is like king has made his bread exploiting fears that mass audiences understood clowns vampires rabid dogs ghosts in haunted hotels killer baby zombies coming back from native american burial grounds that shit is scary everyone from any country understands that's horror what he's aiming for here is way more cerebral far less universal in its appeal not many people understand the tortured soul of an artist you know, like, what does it take to achieve greatness onto the page? And what demons does a writer and his family endure creating that, bringing that subject to life? Generally speaking, audiences don't really care about the pain that goes into the construction of their entertainment. They don't visit the slaughterhouse before they go out to eat. They don't tour the sweatshop before they buy the clothes. You know, it's just, okay, I'm ready to take this. It was hard for you. That's too bad. Oh, you cut your ear off, Fango. I love the painting. So I can have some sympathy for Stephen King. I'm sure it is very hard to face writing again once you're sober. But that's not terrifying. That's not a scary subject. That's a dramatically interesting idea. But the only way that the dark half is going to work as a horror movie is that they go somewhere dark. And that puts a lot of the weight on Timothy Hutton's performance, which, again, I compare to looking like the latest greaser villain from some awful Sometimes They Come Back sequel. Like, it just, he's not really scary in this. And I do think there are actors that could have pulled it off. Romero, eh, he does an okay job of paring down the book. I think as a screenplay, it works pretty well until you get to that end. But in the end, he can't solve the major problems here, which are that it's stagey, talky, dispassionate. Again, a subject matter about tortured artist themes that gets short shrifted. Watch Misery. That is a movie that is much about the creative process as it is a thriller. This one... It's a dull pencil that everyone is trying to write with and nobody can get anything out of. And so it's just kind of an anemic red arrow pointing somewhere in between the better dollar babies and Cujo. Like it's <laughs> like most Stephen King adaptations, a not recommend. 
And to me, this isn't the dark half, it's the dull three quarters. This movie at two hours is too long for what it is, which is a very banal slasher film. And there's not enough slashing to really get your kicks that way. And Timothy Hutton, I said he was good. Here's what I mean by that, because I feel like I need to qualify. He's good at playing two different characters to the point that two out of three hosts here didn't realize it was the same actor. <laughs> that still blows my mind, guys. But all right. I respect it. But as Thad, he's not good in a way where I really care to watch him. He may be good at giving two different performances, but it doesn't work if neither performance is one that I'm really engaged with. And the people around Thad are really given short shrift, as we pointed out at the end. When I reread this book, I didn't like it as much as I did as a teenager. And this movie is far, far worse than the book. I don't, I didn't like it when I watched it originally. I felt really like just it was kind of blah. And here, yeah, it doesn't look good. It's not exciting. The score's decent. Christopher Young, I like Christopher Young. And that's the best thing about it is the score. But still... There's enough here. You know, it's not the worst of the worst by any means. No, it's a mediocre film. I agree. Apathy is where I land, and that is a red arrow, so not recommend. Maybe it'll get better now that they're going to remake it. They are? Just announced just a few months ago. Alex Ross Perry. I saw his latest movie. He did this punk rock drama with Elizabeth Moss called Her Smell. Oh, I've seen that. That's really good. Yeah. It's intense. I mean, the thing is, it's kind of like a Courtney Love biopic, but like Courtney Love really in your face. Yeah, I, I got to say that there's a scene where she's confronting this band in a recording studio. It is one of the scariest things I've ever seen. And it's all just talking. Yeah. So I think if you're going to tell a story about an artist getting to a dark, scary place, yeah, he can deliver it. He's writing it. He's directing it. I think he can do a better version of this. The only thing is I just wonder how you really update this concept and make it terrifying. Like, I don't know if it's going to work, but I bet you it's better than this. I think that people have distance now. No one remembers this film. Well, no, I mean distance from King. Distance from King's heyday where you feel a little bit more able to take liberties with the work. Even the guys who did it took liberties with the work. And King has become a little bit more accepting of liberties taken with his work, so long as you're not Stanley Kubrick. So I think that, yes, they could do it much, much better. That said, I think you need to deviate from the source novel to make it work on screen. You can't be beholden to the page where so much of it is about writing that's just not exciting to see on the page but king writes it very well king brings in emotional stakes that this movie was lacking i look forward to a remake of it because it's still a good book yeah i mean it could work is the way i'll leave it i don't even call it a good book i'm kind of mediocre on the book as well but i can see that it has potential we're done with king for now when we pick him up again we're going to be picking up a short story collection Two movies were adapted from those short stories. The often mentioned Langoliers, that ABC miniseries. Oh no, I've seen the CGI in it. That's all I'll say. I don't know how it's not the worst Stephen King miniseries. In my mind, it is. I haven't seen it since it aired back in the mid 90s. Worse than Tommy Knockers is what you're saying. Oh, definitely, definitely. Oh no, oof. And then another one that I think is considered respectable. I know nothing about it other than it's Johnny Depp playing a writer, Secret Window. I saw that in theaters, haven't seen it since, but I really liked it. It's 
cut something common here with the dark half. Okay, well, we'll find out how much whenever we get back to King. Well, things are fluid right now in terms of the schedule. All that we really know is that we're moving from talking about birds to talking about bees. This Friday, our first Candyman show is available for Silver Level donors. They've been very patient waiting for something ever since March, Friday the 13th, when we covered us. We're coming back for you this Friday. That's not the only Candyman we're talking about, though, is it? That's true. Yeah, Brock and many of the Now Playing hosts are also on Friday going to be on Hot Mike screening the cool Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And then next week, we go to New York, or at least try to escape from New York with Snake Bliskin. Yeah, going from George Romero to another cult director, John Carpenter. I think we've given John Carpenter more green arrows than Romero in the works we've covered. In fact, after all the Romero we've reviewed, I really wonder if he deserves that legacy of master of horror that he's been given. He's still better than Wes Craven. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you guys for joining us. We hope you can donate. It's just a $10 donation at the silver level to join us on Friday for Candyman, 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 I'm not going to say it the fifth time. You don't want Gene Wilder showing up in your room. <laughs> no, I really don't. Even when he was alive, he was creepy, and now I imagine he'd come back like a thing at a creep show. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me, and until next time, thanks, old friend. Thank you for bringing adventure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. What do you guys think, huh? You guys taking this? Is it time to say bye-bye, Uncle George? We hope you've enjoyed the show. The critics rave, but nobody buys. So, he changes his style. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. Start another book, boy. Go home and sharpen your pencils. And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. I you're coming. I'll know because I'll hear the birds. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. I love Trent. I read George Stark because it's fun. I read Thad Beaumont because it's my job. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I thought you knew about this shit. I don't know about any of it. Nobody does, except the Almighty, and he seems to be on sabbatical. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. It's a cutthroat business. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I wish I had a talisman to give you or a silver bullet or a stake to drive through the monster's heart, but I'm afraid it's not that simple. You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. 
patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. Boom, 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 they all hit the charts. He gets rich. Not that rich. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You will die like no other man on Earth has ever died before. Associate produced by Jason. Oh my God. You're disturbing the peaceful mood I'm in. You are disturbing the peaceful frame of mind I'm in. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Born editor. Not that bad, is it? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. You don't shoot a blabber mouth, you make him bleed. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Ask Mama if she believes this. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. What's keeping me out of jail? Me, I guess. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Dad, I'm delighted to see that they haven't incarcerated you. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. You have my word. The word of a southern man, which is not given lightly. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Well, whatever you're talking about, that doesn't matter because this is over now. And Michael Root, Rooker, George uh, Romero, I almost said George Clooney, and George Clinton. Well, yeah, uh, Justin Bateman plays a well-regarded, mild-mannered teacher who is accused of a vile murder. Do you mean Jason Bateman? What did I say? Justin Bateman. Who's that? Who you said. I think you meant, I mean, I I wonder, is there a Justin Bateman? I mean, Justine is his sister. (laughs) Yeah, that must have been what I got confused on. Okay. Um...